Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. Uh, so glad that you're joining with us this morning, and hello to everybody who's in the house, all four of you. So glad you're here uh, with us this morning. Um, hey, we're continuing on our teaching series. We've been going through the book of Romans, as uh, you've heard the scripture read this morning by Danny Dorica, and uh, thanks, Danny, for reading that. We miss you and your family, and we're so stoked when uh, we can all get to back together and see each other again. Um, but if you have a Bible with you, I want to get you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. As well, you can go to our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes. And you can follow along through today's notes because, as you know, as we're going through the book of Romans, we're doing a little bit of a deep dive as we go through it. Uh, thanks also for those of you who joined with us for Solemn Assembly Prayer this past week. I've heard a lot of stories from a number of different people about different ways that God spoke to them or impacted them or just kind of reaccelerated their faith and their prayer journey and their pursuit of God. And that's what our hope is. Our hope is that this would continue, that this wouldn't just be a one-week duty that we do, but it's something that uh, comes along once a year and then allows us to get lift in our prayer life, lift in our seeking and pursuit of God. And I hope and I pray that that will continue for you and it'll continue for me and for all of us as we move throughout this season of Lent towards Good Friday and towards Easter Sunday. So let's keep going. Let's continue to pursue Jesus uh, together. Hey, I want to start with a question this morning. How many of you know that one person who just seems to want to be better than everyone else? You know, maybe they talk a, bit, a lot about their accomplishments or they, you know, they kind of slip in the odd humble brag or, or they name drop people they've met or, or, or when people share something, they feel like they got to share something else that's just a little bit better. They kind of have to one up the other person. Um, it kind of reminds me of that, that character, Penelope, uh, on Saturday Night Live. Uh, she was played by Kristen Wiig, uh, and, and this was a number of years back, I realized. But uh, there, she was this nervous lady, this anxious lady, but in every scenario, she always felt like she had to one-up everything else that somebody else was saying. Uh, and she would do this in all sorts of strange places, like weddings, soup kitchens, group therapies, whatever. She just had to constantly one-up other people. So she's saying these things like, oh, huh, oh you went hiking in the mountains? Well, I... I went, I, went, I went hiking on Everest once with a, with a team of Sherpas, and well, three of them died. We had to eat one of them, but it was a magnificent type of a journey, right? Or, or, or something else you'd say, like, a, oh, you bought a, you bought a new house? Well, that, well that's great. I, I, I bought a house, too, and it's, it's, it's newer than yours, and uh, well, it, well it's, it's bigger, and it has four-car garage, and, and we have a launch pad, and that's how sometimes used, but, you know, it's kind of like your house, but only a little bit better, right? That kind of a person. What, what's the words that we would use to describe that kind of a person? Well, we would say that person is a boaster. That person is boasting. Now, none of us like boasters, but none of us are immune from it either. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we all want to be noticed. We all, we're all just a little bit insecure. Nobody wants to be invisible. Hey, I'll be the first one to admit it. I am a card-carrying member of Insecurity Anonymous. Now, wait a minute. Is that boasting? I'm not sure. Well, anyway, as, as it turns out, the Bible doesn't have anything good to say about boasting. Boasting is about uh, 
yourself. And it's something the Bible says it's to be avoided at all costs. It says you can boast about God, and there are times where you can boast about the merits of other people, but you should never boast about yourself. And one of the big problems with boasting is it actually separates us from other people. So when I am boasting, what I'm doing is I am elevating myself. And when I'm elevating myself, I'm minimizing other people. So boasting elevates, but then it separates. By the way, did you see what I just did there? I made that rhyme up all by myself. It elevates and then it separates. That was all me. But it's not like I'm boasting or anything. <laughs> Now, okay, uh, in today's text, Paul is asking this question. Here's what he says. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? And he asks this because, as a matter of fact, there was some boasting going on in the church in Rome. And this elevation was indeed causing some separation. Paul was writing to a church that was divided. And, and there was real tension in that church between two groups of people. On the one hand, there were the Jewish Christians. And on the other hand, there were the Gentile or the non-Jewish Christians. And some of the Jewish Christians may have thought that they were, in fact, a step above the Gentiles. After all, I mean, they were Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were the ones who had received the law. They were the ones who had circumcision. And they believed that these somehow put them on a better footing before God. And so they were boasting in their elevated position. Now, in the first few chapters of, of Romans, Paul has been trying to kind of level the playing field. He's been shaking the Jews' confidence in their law-keeping. And he's been trying to show that both Jews and Gentiles are in the penalty box together. They're both culpable, they're both accountable, and therefore they both need the gospel. But the good news is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has created one new people out of the two different people. He has created a new humanity where everyone can freely participate through faith in Jesus Christ. So in this new humanity, there are no first-class citizens and there are no second-class citizens. You know, maybe you've heard the story of the businesswoman who was waiting in line to board her flight. And she'd heard that her airline had changed her plane, which meant that the original seating on the plane had kind of all gotten mixed up and this wasn't good news for this woman because she was already quite anxious about flying. I mean, she was, she was afraid of heights. She didn't like small spaces. So when she met the gate agent, she said to her, she said, listen, I want to let you know, I have paid for a first-class first ticket and I want a first-class seat. So can you please tell me where my first-class seat is? The only problem is the new plane was much smaller and it only had 30 seats. So the gate agent just graciously said to her, well, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you're going to be seated in row five, which put this woman over the edge. I mean, she had a self-entitled meltdown. I mean, I paid for first class and I deserve first class. And, and don't, don't you gate agent, don't you understand just how important I am? And then without missing the beat, the gate agent said to her, oh no, oh no, you're right. I made a mistake. The entire plane is first class. In fact, this is a, everybody sitting on this plane is sitting in first class. So then the woman, right after that moment, she just calmed right down. She smiled, went on her plane, and everything was perfectly fine. You see, what the Jewish Christians hadn't yet discovered is that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That they had no privileged status over and above the Gentiles. Because the new plane that they were flying in had changed. 
and everybody now was riding first class, both Jews and Gentiles. And so in today's text, Paul is going to answer the question, what then becomes of boasting? And he's going to tell us that if there is any reason why, whether or not there is any reason why you should elevate yourself above other believers. And the roundabout way that Paul answers this question might seem a little bit surprising because he's going to show us how God's own righteousness eliminates all boasting. In fact, God's own righteousness excludes boasting from the life of any believer. Now, you might recall that uh, if you've been joining us in this series, that one of the main themes of the book of Romans is, in fact, God's own righteousness or the righteousness of God. And that's a strange term, but it essentially means that God is faithful in keeping his promises, that he is the just judge who will judge all people fairly, and he is the just God who will one day right all wrongs. He will return and he will fix everything. So how does God's righteousness and boasting intersect. I mean, what is the connection? Well, we're going to get there when we're going to come to it in the end as we work our way through the text together. And I want to do that. And as we walk through the text together, we are going to discover three truths about God's righteousness. Here's the first truth. First, Paul says in verse 21 that it's a righteousness apart from law. He says that God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the Gentiles first of all, were happy to follow Christ without the law. So they were more than willing to do away with the restrictions, you know, the uh, sacred days, and most definitely, of course, they were happy to get rid of circumcision. So some of them may have even thought, hey, can't we just kind of get rid of all this Jewish history and tradition? Can't we follow Jesus without the law? But then the Jews wanted everyone to follow Christ within the law. So yes, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who came to save the world. So, of course, don't we all still need to maintain these former practices of the law if we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus? Which means that the Gentiles also needed to maintain the law. They all needed to be within the law. But Paul says God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Through Christ Jesus, God has done something that is beyond the scope of the law. This, this doesn't mean that the law was a failure. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake. In fact, that's why Paul will say in verse 31, we don't overthrow the law. He says we uphold the law. So the law played its role for Israel. It showed Israel how to live in covenant faithfulness with God. And ultimately, it revealed their failure, and it showed their desperate need for the gospel. But Jesus fulfilled the law. And he did this through his death and through his resurrection. In fact, Paul says in verse 21 that even the law and the prophets bear witness to this. So these ancient voices, they, they anticipated and they predicted the coming of the Messiah. That through Jesus, there would be a new way. There would be a new covenant apart from the law. So this new covenant, it is apart from God's law, but it is not apart from from God's righteous plan. And you see, the law fits into God's plan, but so does Jesus. Jesus fits into God's plan. And so in this way, there's both continuity with the law, but there's also some discontinuity with the law under this new covenant. And really what, what, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, don't you see just how brilliant God is? 
Do you see how this manifests God's righteousness? I mean, this is only something that God could come up with. He, he's the only one who has the infinite wisdom and who has the infinite power to pull this thing off. His brilliance is so far beyond anything that we could conceive of, anything that we could ever imagine. So it's, it's really, it's like the difference between a chess player and a grandmaster chess player. So between a beginner and a grandmaster. And the thing about a beginner is when they're playing chess, they see individual chess pieces and, and they might think one or two pieces uh, moves in advance. But a grandmaster, he sees chess actually very, very differently. I read about a study that looked at the difference between beginner chess players and grandmaster chess players. Each of the players were shown, and, and they did this with a number of different players, but each of the players were shown a series of chessboards, and each chessboard had a different configuration on it. And they were given about five to ten seconds to examine the chessboards. Later on, they came back to them and said, can you tell us what you saw on the chessboards? And the beginner chess players, they could maybe identify four or five pieces on the board and where they sat. The grandmasters, they could identify every board with perfect memory. They saw it all. And what the studies revealed is that the reason the grandmasters could remember the boards so well is because they actually saw the boards in a different way. When average players look at the boards, they saw individual pieces in individual spaces. But when grandmasters look at the boards, they saw formations. They saw network chunks of information. They saw how everything fit together in just a snapshot. And it actually took them years and years and years to develop the skills. Grandmasters see everything differently. Therefore, they play the game differently. When a beginner plays a grandmaster, what they don't realize is that the grandmaster is in complete control of the game. The beginner thinks, oh, I have free will. I'm exercising my free will. I'm moving the pieces around the board. But what they don't know is that the grandmaster is controlling their pieces the whole time. He's controlling the whole board because he actually sees everything. He can shift the pieces of the other player because he sees formations, not just individual pieces. As a matter of fact, some grandmasters, they think, can actually see 15 to 20 moves in advance on a chessboard. And think about that. When you consider that there are the number of pieces on the board, 32 pieces on the board, that involves millions upon millions of permutations and calculations in just a moment. That's brilliant. And what Paul has been showing us at this point is that God is the ultimate grandmaster at a far more complex game. God is not just playing chess. God is playing humanity, and he is thinking, and he is planning, and he is moving history to its final culmination in the end, where he will right all wrongs, and he will fix everything. And he has not just been moving 32 pieces. He has been moving billions upon billions of pieces on a scale that we can't even begin to fathom. And what Paul has been doing so far in Romans, he says, I'm just kind of pulling back the curtain, and I'm just revealing to you God's own righteousness. And I'm showing you what it's all about in its magnitude. And we have the privilege as believers in Christ of not only seeing God's own righteousness, but we have the privilege of actually being part of it, being caught up in it. It should make us feel quite small. And it should make God seem quite large. And if that is true, then where is there room for boasting for us? Well, that's the first truth. Here's the second truth. He says it's a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. See, Paul says that God's righteousness is revealed through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. That's in verse 22. 
See, faith in Jesus is the solution to our problem. And, and Paul has been talking about this problem for the last few chapters. If you've been in the series, this should be no surprise for you. And it's actually summarized in verse 23. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is really a summary of everything that's gone on from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, and verse 20. The big idea that Paul has slowly been unpacking is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Everyone is in the penalty box. And, and you know, Paul does say that a really interesting phrase there. I, I think you've noticed it. He says, we've fallen short of the glory of God. What is that all about? Well, what Paul is doing is he's actually going back to the root of all sin. And we talked about this when we went through chapter 1. The root of all sin, essentially, is a failure of worship. When we exchange the glory of God for the glory of something else, this is a failure of worship. Our glory as human beings is, is intrinsically tied to God's glory. We are made in His image. So the further that we walk away from God, the farther we walk away from glory. Because we've all traded down on glory, Paul says, we essentially fall short of God's own glory. And that's the problem. That's the root of the problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then Paul describes the solution to our problem. He says that we are justified as by his grace as a gift. Now, I realize that word justified is, is not a word we use in our everyday language. So I do want to take some time and I want to break it down for us and help you understand what it means. Essentially, justify is a legal term. When you are justified... It means that there is no legal basis for accusation against you. And put in divine terms, when we are justified, we are in right standing before God. He no longer holds anything against us. That's what it means to be justified. Now, Paul would say that this justification, us being justified, it's a gift. In other words, it's something that is freely given to us. And, and the thing about a gift, I think sometimes we misunderstand what a gift really is. I mean, for example, the other day I was purchasing something online, and when I got to the shopping cart and I was about to make my payment, this little notification came up and says, hey, if you just spend $20 more, we will give you a free gift for your purchase. Now, was that a gift? Well, no, it actually wasn't a gift. It was an incentive. It was a reward, but it wasn't a gift. I shouldn't have to pay more in order to get a gift, because a gift is free. Let me give you another example. Last Christmas, someone bought me a gift. I realized this person had completely fallen off my radar, and I did not buy this person a gift. I felt a little bit awkward. So what did I do after that? I went out, and I bought them a gift, and I gave it to them. Here's the question. Was that a gift? The answer is, no, that really wasn't a gift, right? Because it wasn't something that was freely given. What was I doing? I was reciprocating. I was saving face is what I was doing. But Paul says our justification is a gift by God's grace. It is freely given to us. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it. We, we cannot beg or barter for it. We don't deserve it. All we have to do is receive it. It is a gift. So how has this gift of justification been made possible? Well, it's only possible, Paul says, through payment. Because remember the problem. The problem is, is that everyone has sinned. The Jews have failed to keep the law of Moses. The Gentiles have failed to live up to the law of their consciousness. And when the law is broken, there is a penalty. 
There is a cost that needs to be paid. And he will say in Romans 6, 23, that the wages, the cost of sin, ultimately is death. It's spiritual separation for God both now and forevermore. Now, one option that God could have done is he could have just kind of arbitrarily forgave everyone, right? So automatically, he's just like, like Oprah Winfrey, you get a justification, and you get a justification, and you get a justification. Everybody gets a justification. And just done it arbitrarily. So everyone is justified. Everyone gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. And nobody is held to account for what they've done. Whether they've forgotten to pay their library fine or whether they've committed genocide, it doesn't matter. Nobody is held to account. But think about it. If God did that, God would not be a just judge. There would be no righteousness of God. But God had a better solution. And Paul uses two words to describe this payment plan that God has. And it's in verses 24 and 25. First, he says that we have redemption in Christ Jesus. Second, we have propitiation by his blood. Again, these are not familiar words. So I'm going to break them down for us this morning. First, the redemption. When he says the word redemption, he essentially means to set someone free at a cost. In Paul's day, it was used to describe someone paying someone's ransom or someone paying to set a slave free. That's what redemption means. Paul is pointing us ultimately to the story of Exodus. And if you know the story of Exodus, this is where God's people were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They, they were under the weight of slavery. They cried out to God. God heard their voices. God sent plagues to try and get his people to be set free, but Pharaoh's heart kept being hardened more and more. So finally, God sent a final plague, and it was the plague of death. But he provided a way for his own people to escape his wrath judgment. So through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, whose blood was placed on the doorframe around a house, it protected God's people. So that as the angel of death came, it didn't visit their homes. And what did it do? It passed over. And of course, this is the beginning of the story of Passover and the practice of Passover. God did this ultimately so that his people would be set free, so that Pharaoh would let his people go. And after that, Pharaoh did, in fact, let his people go, and thus began the exodus of God's people out of Egypt and towards the promised land. And what God did for Israel, he has now done for the whole world. Jesus our Passover lamb has purchased our redemption. We have been set free from the power of sin. We are no longer under its control. We are no longer under this domination. We no longer have to do what it says to us. And we are now part of a new exodus as God's people. So what does the word propitiation mean? Well, it essentially means to satisfy God's just wrath. So it implies the turning away of God's wrath from sinful people. And what Paul is doing is he's pointing us towards the Day of Atonement, which Israel participated in once a year as part of its sacrificial system. And on this day, the Lord would appear in a cloud over what was called the mercy seat. Of course, the mercy seat sat on top of the altar. It was between the two golden cher uh, seraphim. And uh, it was located in the most holy place in the temple, which only the high priest had access to. This was the meeting place between God and Israel. 
this mercy seat. And on the day of, the, of atonement, the high priest, he would sacrifice a goat for Israel. And he'd carry the blood of the goat into the most holy place. And he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat and on the top of the altar. And he did this to make atonement for the sins of Israel. The blood that was on the altar covered their sins in order to satisfy God's just wrath. It was a propitiation for the sins of Israel. And similarly, we have a propitiation, atonement, through the blood of Jesus. I mean, you can read about this in Hebrews chapter 9. We read that Jesus, our high priest, he actually entered heaven itself to appear in God's presence on our behalf. And he offered the more perfect sacrifice, which was his own blood, and he covered us, God's people, once and for all. In other words, there's no longer a need for a repeated annual sacrificial system. Jesus is our high priest, Jesus is our mercy seat, and Jesus is our sacrifice. And Jesus has us covered, and Jesus has you covered. He has done it. It is finished. And all of this is available, Paul says. Every part of this is available for those of us who believe. For those of us who have faith in Christ, that if you today will just put your complete trust in Jesus Christ, you will surrender yourself completely to him in faith, you can be justified, you can be redeemed, and you can be covered. That's amazing. And I wonder how many of you believe that this morning. I wonder how many of you know this morning that you are justified. Do you know that you are redeemed? Do you know that you are covered? You know, I wonder if this morning, a crazy idea, okay, I wonder if this morning we do something a little bit different. I think we need to make a declaration. I think we need to make a declaration to God. We need to make a declaration to ourselves. We need to make a declaration to all of the principalities and the powers that would seek to undermine this truth and erase it from our minds and our hearts. I think we need to make a declaration this morning. There is a power when we speak something out. And I want to give you permission this morning to make a declaration. I wonder if you could repeat something after me this morning. And I wonder if you could repeat it like you mean it. To say it with force. To say it from your heart and to say it with conviction. Would you repeat after me this morning? I am justified. I am redeemed. And I am covered. Amen. He has done it. It is finished. And Paul says that all of this, it reveals God's righteousness. Let's look at verse 26. He says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. It's amazing truth. Well, here's the third truth. It's a righteousness that removes boasting. This brings us full circle to Paul's question. Where then is boasting? Well, let's look at verse 27 again. Here's what he says. He says, then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. See, what God's revealed righteousness does is it ultimately puts us in a rightful place. It says that they, there's no room for boasting because this is not something that we have done. This is something that has been done for us. 
I mean, if we could be justified through our works, then we'd have a reason to boast. Absolutely. But we cannot, and therefore we do not. And the only way for us to be saved, Paul says, is through faith. And so the law of faith has overcome the law of works. I mean, think about it this way. We, we all believe in the law of gravity. You believe in the law of gravity, right? You don't think you can just float, right? The basic law of gravity is this. What comes up must go down. And the farther you fall, well, the faster you go and the harder it hurts when you hit the ground. That's why we don't jump off a building. We might jump off a front step, but we're not going to jump off a building. And for our math geeks out there, yes, I know the acceleration due to gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared, right? I, I get that, right? Woo! We are all under the law of gravity. But what if there was a way to overcome the law of gravity with yet another law? What about the law of aerodynamics? See, the law of aerodynamics says that by combining four different forces, lift, drag, weight, and thrust, you can actually overcome the law of gravity. So the shape of an airplane's wings combined with enough thrust can minimize drag and overcome weight. And suddenly, you're in the air. When you are in an airplane, the law of gravity hasn't disappeared, but it has been overcome by another law. And that's the law of aerodynamics. Now, I wonder how many of you have ever been on a flight before. I've been on a number of flights in my life. <clears throat> but imagine that you're on a flight, you're in your seat, the plane has finally reached its highest point in the air, and it's time to take your seatbelts off. And as soon as that moment happens, you just like, you just throw your hands up in the air, right? And you're like, yes, yes, I did that. It was all me. I have overcome gravity. I did that all by myself. And you stand up and you start marching down the aisle, high-fiving people, and you're high-fiving people. Look at me. I'm the gravity king. I've overcome it. What would people think? They think, man, that guy is crazy. He's, he's spent way too much time in quarantine. He needs to get out a whole lot more because he had nothing to do with this. All he did was sit in his chair while the plane did all of the work. Do we have any reason to brag? Do we have any reason to boast? Friends, salvation isn't an accomplishment. It's not a privilege. It's not a reward. It's something we receive by faith. And it's something you sit in. It's something you rest in. Through faith in Jesus, we are justified. We are redeemed. We are covered. And boasting is therefore excluded. That's why Paul would write this in his letter to the Corinthians. For who sees anything different than you? What do you have that you did not receive? And then you received it. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, the believer in Christ understands that all of life is grace. That everything we have is a gift from God. The air we breathe, the job we keep, the warm bed we sleep in, the people that God has placed into our lives, and of course, the new life in Christ. All of life is grace. Therefore, there is no boasting. In fact, the Bible says if we're going to boast, we should boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts just boast in the Lord. So what then is the alternative? Or even better, what is the antidote for boasting? Well, let me just suggest a couple of things as we close this morning. Humility and gratitude. And I think those are the only appropriate response that we should have as we stand in the face of God's righteousness. Humility and gratitude. 
Humility is a right understanding of who I am before God. It's based on truth. It's understanding fully and completely who I truly am. Not who I want to be, who I think I am, who I truly am. That's humility. Gratitude is thankfulness and praise for all that God has done on our behalf. And I don't know about you, but I have a great concern for how the church is being portrayed in the media these days. For how people are talking about the church. For the posture that the church is taking in the world. There seems to be a lot of swagger, a lot of chest bumping, and a lot of posturing. But not a lot of humility. And not a lot of gratitude. And if we have been radically rescued through the cross of Jesus Christ, don't you think it's true that we should be the most gracious, thankful, and humble people on the planet? And I realize that, you know, there are really people who are on the fringe, who have the loudest voices, and are creating the worst portrayal of Christians in the world today. But Crosspoint, I want to ask us as a local church, as a local church community, when the world sees us, what do they see? Do they see boasting and swagger? Or do they see humility and gratitude? And let me ask you specifically about yourself. Because I think God is asking that of us all the time. When the world sees you, what do they see? Do they see boasting and swagger? Or do they see humility and gratitude? And so cross point, may we fully understand the height and the width and the depth of the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus. And may we stand in awe of the righteousness of God poured out on us through Christ Jesus. And may we walk in humility and may we live with gratitude. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a chance to just pause, put your life on pause for a moment, take a couple minutes in quietness and uh, reflection, and just talk to God. I'm sure that there's things that God is saying to you this morning, and uh, he wants to, get to give you this opportunity to just connect with them, and we want to give you this opportunity as well. So let's take a couple moments. What is God saying to you, and what should you do about it? Let's pray, and then I'll close us off in prayer.
for it. You are the one who justifies. You are the one who redeems. You are the one who cleanses, who covers us. And we just posture our hearts this morning, Lord, in humility and in gratitude for who you are and for all that you've done. In faith, we receive Christ yet again this day. We walk in faith, in sustaining faith in the grace that you've given. And we seat ourselves in Christ. We rest in him for all that he has done for us. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Transform our hearts anew. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.